Hello, and thank you for tuning in to The Christian Skeptic. I'm your host, Sean Kerwin, and as always, it's my mission to take an honest look at our questions about Christianity through the lens of logic and reason. I'm not here to preach at you, just to start a conversation with you. I hope you enjoy the show. Well, hello, fellow skeptics. I am going to be very honest with you. I'm excited about this episode, and I think a lot of you will be as well, because after having some conversations with you through social media, I know that this is a question that is on a lot of people's minds. And so today I want to ask, can you trust the Bible? Now, given my time as a pastor and as someone who is very passionate about evangelism, this is a question that I have studied a lot, which is why I can confidently give you the answer, I don't know if you can trust the Bible or not. Now, let me explain to you what I mean before you turn this episode off. I can trust the Bible, and I have reasons why I can trust the Bible, but I don't know if you specifically can, and I don't want to solve that in 20 minutes. That's a big question. That's something that I have spent hours and hours and hours studying And I want you to have the same luxury in that. So what I want to do for the next 18 or so minutes of us being together is I want to peel back the curtains of how I came to the conclusion that I can trust the Bible. And maybe that'll help you come to the same conclusion as well. I don't know. That'll be up to you to decide. Uh, But either way, trust is something that I can't decide for you. Trust is something you have to decide for yourself, right? Trust is earned. Trust is developed. It's not instantaneous. And it's not something I can give you. It's something you must develop on your own. It's something that the Bible must earn for itself in your life. And so this is a very broad question. We have 66 books in the Bible. We have an Old Testament and a New Testament. And so for this episode, I just want to focus in on the New Testament. Though the tactics I'm about to give you will apply for the Old and the New Testament, I'm going to give you a few tactics that I've used on how to trust the Bible, and I'll give you examples in the New Testament only. And then using your own logic, reason, and deduction, you take the examples, you take the tactics I'm about to give you today, and you apply them to the Old Testament yourself. Sound good? Okay, let's begin. So I want to get two things out of the way. First of all, we are approaching a book. We're approaching a piece of literature, so we must analyze it as such. We are also approaching a historical book. Both Old and New Testament have portions of them that are history, that are poetry, that are prophecy. But that first part, history, is very important because history tries to do something very similar to what origin science does, where origin science considers establishing probabilities of singular events in science and singularities. History does the same thing, right? Events have happened in a time before the one in which we currently live, and they must be interpreted. That's the job of the historian. So three of the most reliable tools we can use when evaluating a piece of literature and a piece of literary history were given to us by Dr. C. Sanders in 1952 when he wrote his book, Introduction to Research in English Literary History. You see, Dr. Sanders was a military historian, and he established three basic tests for deciding if an ancient document is reliable. The first test is the bibliographical test. Since we don't have the original documents, uh, the, the original manuscripts that John, Mark, Luke, Matthew, Paul, 
all wrote on, we need to evaluate how reliable and accurate the copies that we do have are in regard to the number of manuscripts that we have. So in other words, we have a certain number of copies of a historical document. And this isn't just the Bible. This is the Iliad, which Homer wrote. Uh, these are the writings of Caesar. These are the writings of Plato, right? We have historical documents that we don't necessarily have the original of, but we have copies. And so then we must compare each copy to every other copy we have and compare how accurate the copies are. And that's the bibliographical test. The second test is the internal test, which is basically asking the question of what does the text actually say? Is it internally consistent or does it contradict itself? And finally, we have the external test, which is to say what's outside of the text. What pieces of literature or other data like archaeology that is still in existence apart from the text that can confirm the accuracy of the inner testimony of the document? So when we look at the bibliographical test, we're looking at the manuscripts. We're looking at what we have from the ancient world today that we can touch, feel, see, and most importantly, read. So in speaking about the New Testament, we currently have over 5,000 Greek manuscripts. Now, these aren't necessarily all complete manuscripts. Some of them are fragments. Some of them are complete. But we have over 5,000. I believe it's almost 6,000 now. I'm looking at a source from the early 2000s that said about 20 years ago we had 5,686 copies. So if I'm wrong and we have more, feel free to message me and correct me on that. But we'll just take that number, 5,686 manuscripts that are copies of the original. And carbon dating puts most of these manuscripts within the first six centuries. So carbon dating puts the John Rylands fragment which is a fragment in a museum in Manchester, England. Carbon dating puts that copy at 125 AD. Now, this is pretty significant because when we look at the books of the Bible, the last book of the Bible was said to have been written somewhere between 90 and 100 AD. So that is only a difference of 25 years between our earliest manuscript and the actual completion of the letters in the New Testament. And why is that significant? It's significant because when we look at the New Testament, these were letters in circulation. When you look at the gospel accounts, the, the letter of Acts, as well as all of the epistles, which is just a, another word for letter, and then followed by the book of Revelation, which was also meant to be a letter. At the very start of the book, Jesus says to John, write this letter to the seven churches. This is important but because what we know from history is that when a church would receive a letter, they would make a copy of that letter. They would actually make several copies of that letter and send it out to different churches and different Christian households throughout really the known world at that time. For example, when Paul wrote Ephesians, not only did the church at Ephesus hear what Paul wrote in the letter, but the Ephesians would have made a copy of that letter and they would have sent it to the church at Corinth. They would have sent it to the church at Philippi. They would have sent it to the church in Rome. They would have sent it to the church in Jerusalem. They would have sent it to the churches in Asia Minor. They would have sent it all over the place. Why is that? Well, it's because of the credibility of the author. In the example I just mentioned with Paul, his credibility was that he founded most of those churches. In the case of John or Matthew or James, their credibility was that they walked with Jesus when he was on this earth. 
And another observation from Logic says, if we have 5,686 manuscripts in existence and one of those manuscripts says something that is fundamentally different than the other ones, that raises some red flags, right? If, if we have a manuscript, say, that we found in 200 AD and it says, oh, hey, by the way, Jesus never actually rose from the dead, right? Or, or, or Jesus wasn't actually God, or it says something that's fundamentally different, that should give us some pause, but that's simply not the case, and it's not like these manuscripts are hidden off in some vault somewhere. Granted, some of them might be, but the vast majority of them were available for study, for research. We currently in this country, in Washington, D.C., have a museum dedicated to the Bible that contains hundreds of manuscripts that you can actually go walk up to and look at and even read. I was there just last year with a friend of mine who speaks fluent Hebrew, and we would walk up to the display, and he would read me a manuscript in Hebrew and translate it to me, which I totally recommend doing. If you have a friend that speaks Hebrew or Greek, take them with you to the Bible Museum and have them read the original manuscripts, especially if you're the kind of skeptic that I am. <laughs> so enough on the bibliographical test. There are things you can look up about the manuscripts online. Uh, there are, are museums, as I just mentioned, you can go to, and I really encourage you to do so. If that is something that you're curious about or something that's a stumbling block to believing what's in the Bible, I encourage you to do so. The next test we must pass is the internal test, because if within the Bible it can contradict itself, it clearly presents itself as untrue, right? If, if you recall from our first episode here in The Christian Skeptic, we kind of went through this walkthrough of what logic is, and we talked about the law of non-contradiction, which is to say, if something contradicts itself, it must be false, right? And, and I think we gave the example of absolute truth. If I say there is no absolute truth, well, I'm making an absolute truth claim about there not being any absolute truth, right? So, so within itself, it's contradictory. Well, if the Bible were to say something, you know, say the Bible does say, Jesus rose from the dead. And then three chapters later, it says Jesus never rose from the dead, right? It would be contradictory to itself and would therefore be false and not worth believing at all. And so when we get to the internal test, there are a few different lenses we need to look at it through. We need to look at it linguistically. We need to look at it culturally. We need to look at it geographically. And we need to look at it historically, right? We need to look at it linguistically. Realizing that the Old Testament was written in ancient Hebrew and that the New Testament was written in Koine Greek. Koine just meaning common. So what we need to realize is if we're reading the Bible in any other language besides those two languages, we are reading what is a translation of those two languages. Aha, you may be thinking, or conscientious objector in my head is thinking, that's why I can't trust it. Because of all the translations. There are so many translations of the Bible, and I agree with you. Don't trust every translation. But luckily for us, we live in the day and age where information is at our fingertips. And we can apply the bibliographical test to the different translations that we have, right? So what I mean by that is, when you look at a translation, does it wildly contradict other translations? I'm going to pick on the message translation here for a second. In most other translations of the Bible, and when you read it in the original Greek, Matthew chapter 5 is the Beatitudes, right? Where Jesus goes through a list of blessed are, fill in the blank, for they shall, fill in the blank. Right? He describes a character trait, a quality of the heart, and then describes a blessing, something that will come to those who have that character trait or that quality of heart. One such example is from the New King James Version, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And when you look at 
other similar versions. The verse generally means the same thing, but when you look at the message translation, it says, you are happiest, and I'm quoting, when you're content with just who you are, no more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. So clearly we're saying two different things here. But I know historically that the Old King James Version was translated from Hebrew and Greek to Latin and then to English, but the New King James Version was translated straight from Hebrew and Greek to English. So I know that the New King James Version is more reliable than the message. Follow my logic there? So the next two I'm just going to pair together for the sake of time, but we have to look at it culturally and historically. We have to realize that culturally the Bible wasn't written in the 21st century. The Bible was written, and particularly the New Testament, was written in the 1st century in the Roman Empire. Things were wildly different in the Roman Empire. Polygamy was okay. Slavery was okay. Oppressing people because of their race was okay. There were temples set up all over the Roman Empire in every town and every province and every city that worshipped all kinds of gods. Okay, so maybe that's not entirely different from our day and age. But nonetheless, it was a very different time. People didn't have phones, people didn't have cars, people didn't have electricity. And not only that, they were Jewish and Roman and Syrian and Greek. And today we have so many other cultures. So when something strikes us as funny or as contradictory in the Bible, it's also important to remember that we are looking at it through a very different cultural and historical lens and that there are many books that can help us gain the proper historical and cultural perspective. One of my favorite authors is Alfred Edersheim. He's a Jewish historian and he has written a dozen or so books describing Jewish social life. Actually, my favorite book that I have of his is simply just titled Jewish social life, where he talks about what it would have been like to be a Jewish person in the first century AD. And then lastly, in the internal test, we need to consider the geographical lens. For example, cities and provinces and places were mentioned in the Bible that are no longer named what they used to be named. And that kind of goes along with the cultural historical lens we need to put on, right? The world was different back then is really the point that I'm driving home there. And people saw the world differently than we see it today. Which does bring me to the point that I gotta let you in on a little secret. The Bible contradicts itself. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. But that actually makes it more believable. I want you to consider something with me called the psychology of testimony. Now, if anyone's a student of law out there, they'll probably recognize what I'm talking about here. But this is the psychology that says when eyewitnesses give an account of something that had happened and all of their accounts of it are exactly the same down to every finite detail, investigators and prosecutors will actually suspect it more of being fabricated. However, when eyewitnesses give accounts of an event that overall gets the main gist of the story the same, but perhaps a few minor details are contradictory investigators and prosecutors are more likely to believe that the stories were not made up and that the story actually happened and the, the eyewitness is just retelling it from memory. So, for example, if someone robs a convenience store and say that there are five or six witnesses around and each witness gives a testimony and they describe the, uh, the, the gentleman who robbed the convenience store, let's say he had short hair and, and he, had, he had a scruffy beard, he was wearing red tennis shoes, blue jeans, and the prosecutor asks, what did he steal? And each witness says he stole a bag of chips, but they differ. One says, I think it was 
uh, cheesy chips, and the other one says, no, it was barbecue. That would actually be more believable because they're messing up, they're contradicting each other on a minor detail, but overall they would be getting the main gist of the story correct, and so we do see this in the New Testament. But since I'm kind of assigning you some homework in this episode, as it were anyway, I'm not going to tell you where the New Testament contradicts itself. I encourage you to go look that up on your own and uh, give me some feedback. Let me know. Let me know if, if you can find a place where the New Testament contradicts itself and let's have a discussion about it. I'd love to see what you find out of this investigation that you're running. And so with that, I move on to the third test, which is the external test, which is to ask the question, what sources are there apart from the writings under analysis, the, the writings of scripture, that confirm the document's accuracy, reliability, and authenticity. So this is where we go to historians. Perhaps one of the most famous historians is a Jewish historian named Flavius Josephus. He was a historian who was born in 37 AD and lived to about 100 AD. And he documents the changing landscape of not only Judaism, but the Roman Empire at that time. And the most noteworthy thing, biblically speaking, about Josephus is that he documents the characters in the Bible. He affirms that they existed historically because they were stirring up all kinds of trouble for both the Jews and the Roman Empire. So he doesn't write necessarily flattering things about them, but he writes about them. Which, if we just apply logic to the situation, makes it seem very likely that they indeed lived at the time the Bible was written. And along with Josephus, we also had Gentile historians as well, Greek historians, of whom were Thallus, Julius Africanus, Cornelius Tacticus, Plinius Segundus, or Pliny the Younger, as he's more popularly known as, and even the Greek poet and satirical commentator Celsus. After that, we look at archaeology. We look at the landmarks that were described in the New Testament, such as the Pool of Bethesda, Jacob's Well, the Pool of Siloam, the ancient cities of Bethlehem, Nazareth, Cana, Capernaum, Chorazin, and even Pilate's Palace in Jerusalem, right? Archaeologically, we've uncovered all of these things. And perhaps one of even the most telling pieces of archaeological evidence is what we know for certain is not there anymore which was the temple in Jerusalem that is mentioned all throughout the Gospels, right? Jesus even says, one day this is going to fall and not one brick shall lay on another. And we know that that actually happened in 70 AD. Keep that number in mind, 70 AD. We know that happened in 70 AD, that the temple caught fire and all of the gold within it melted into the bricks. And so the Roman army that sacked the temple commanded that every brick should be removed, that not one brick should stand on another so they could extract the gold from it. We know that from history as well. But the most telling thing is that it's not mentioned in the Bible. And I say that's telling because for Jews, this was everything. This was the bald eagle and American pie for Americans, but for Jews. This is what they placed their religious hope and their nationality and was the temple in Jerusalem. It was the epicenter of all Jewish life. And so to not mention it for Jewish writers, to not mention one of the most devastating things to happen in all of Jewish history, even still to this day, the fall of, of the, the temples over history is one of the most devastating things that happened in Jewish history, perhaps other than being captive in Egypt and Babylon. And so for Jewish writers to not write that in any of the gospels or in the book of Acts, I present to you is a strong argument for all of those documents having been written before 70 AD, which, if you're tracking historically, is within 30 years of Jesus' death and resurrection. And you know what? I'll even leave you with a fourth consideration, and this one's specifically on 
the literature of the time. When you look at the literature of the time, especially literature that intends to develop something slightly more grand than a philosophy, which is what the Bible intends to do. It intends to develop a religion, a set of, of religious beliefs, which we know from history are to die for, right? When a text attempts to do that, it does so through legend, not through testimony. And that's because primarily it's fiction. Not, not the Bible, but most legends and, and mythologies were fiction. And writing fiction in the form of eyewitness account or testimony isn't a literary style that we necessarily see in the world for another 1,600 or so years after the Bible claims to have been written, after the manuscripts are dated. The Gospel writers are extremely honest about all of their flaws. The people that are supposed to be heroes in the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, right? David is this hero figure throughout all of Jewish history, throughout all of biblical history, and yet he sleeps with Bathsheba and murders her husband. He's a terrible, terrible dude. And not only that, he's weak. <laughs> all, all of the writers in the Bible, all of the apostles are weak. They're scared. They lose their faith at times. If you're writing a, a legend about a new religion, you would think if you were making it up, you would want everyone in this religion to have the strongest faith of any other religion in the entire world, not to lose their faith half the time in the Bible. And lastly, David Hume once stated that really the existence of natural laws from the uniform course of human experience is our only guide in reasoning and concerning matters of fact. Whatever is contrary to human experience excludes all knowledge derived by inference or deduction from facts. In other words, David Hume, the great skeptic, was skeptical <laughs> of religion, of Christianity, based on his deduction that he couldn't come to the same conclusions the Bible came to on his own sensory experience. But what if the Bible was written through a sensory experience? What if the Bible was written historically, at the time it was supposed to have been written, by fallible, imperfect men who contradicted each other on minor details, and that all the thousands of manuscripts we have that are copies of those original letters also, for the most part, corroborate. Can you trust it then? If you can't trust this, can you trust any other text? Either historical or current? I don't know. That's up to you to decide. I'm here as a fellow skeptic if you want to have the conversation. Because over my years of studying the Bible, I'll tell you I've been very skeptical of it. And I highly encourage you to be skeptical of the Bible as well. To read every single page of it with a hunger and thirst for truth and see what this piece of literary history has to offer you. And so in closing, I know we're not done talking about this. We're going to have more episodes on it for sure. I encourage all of you and thank you all so much for submitting this question, for having some conversation with me over some form of messaging app. It really does mean a lot to me to get your feedback, to engage with you. So please keep doing that. But for now, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you've enjoyed the show.